Now, we know there's no average people out here in the congregation, but for the average person, I'm one of those, uh, our lives are full of routines, right? Like we do a lot of the same things most days of the week, and we often, I often, take for granted the just sort of the basic things in life, like they are just part of my landscape, part of my world. I don't typically ask questions. Like, unless you're particularly curious, um, you may not even question why, I don't know, like when you meet someone, you shake hands, right? Like, where did that come from? Or like, where did wedding rings come from? Or, you know, all of these kind of basic things that we just take for granted that we kind of do in our Western culture. Sometimes when I read for fun, and I I like to read for fun, uh, I I seek out people who give me a fresh perspective on the regular things in life. Uh, I particularly enjoy Bill Bryson, uh, his books, and and, uh, one specific book is really fun, his 2010 book, At Home. And he, because I like England, and he's, you know, he's like a dual citizen, but he does a lot of work in England, and he's in Yorkshire, and he he has this old house that was a, a rectory from like the 18th century, 19th century, and he just like, it just dawns on him that he He doesn't know why it's shaped that way and why the things are in the rooms the way they are. And so this whole book is basically like looking at the house and asking architectural questions. And he goes into the sitting room and is like, why is this here? And why are salt and pepper the normal things that we put on the dinner table in the Western world? Uh, Like an example would be um, most people in the 19th century, that's the 1800s, they would sit on long benches and long tables, except for like maybe the head of the household that person would have a bench or a seat with a back on it, what we call a chair. Uh, That was to give kind of status to that person. Any of you ever serve on a board or a committee? I know there are more of you out there. Yeah, um, so the the head of that board or committee is typically called what? The the chair, right? Like Ryan Wasserman is the chair of our leadership team uh, group. So uh, that term comes from the fact that the head of the household would sit in the only seat with the back on it. I don't know, I just find that interesting. Fresh perspective on familiar things that we use every single day. It struck me that each year at Advent and Christmas time, we at church tell these fantastic stories from Scripture about prophecies and the birth of Jesus and the salvation of the world. And with the telling of these stories over and over again, there is a real danger of making the good news sort of common, making this truly, utterly amazing story some sort of domesticated Hallmark Channel soap opera that's devoid of any sort of mystery and stripped of any inconvenience upon our lives. So this year for Advent, I want to look at some of the core stories from the foundational texts of Scripture and offer just a little bit of fresh perspective so that we don't fall into the trap of just going through the Advent motions. And one of the classic texts for Advent and Christmas is rooted in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. And if you're able, I invite you to stand while I read that now. This is the the text we'll be rooted in. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, the men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as if in the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and to his reign of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, raise your hand if some or all of that passage was somewhat familiar to you. It's a lot of hands. Anyone care to tell me where that's familiar from? Like, what, where have you heard stuff like that before? Messiah. Yeah, Handel's Messiah. Christmas pageants, of course, yes. Church? Like, lot, lot, like lots of places, right? Like, this is a, a pretty common Advent Christmas passage. I, that was the first thing that came to my mind was Handel's Messiah. In fact, that's part where we get into Isaiah 9 is like my favorite movement of, of that whole thing. Um, this, parts of this passage, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, these are on banners and Christmas cards. It, they're on children's coloring stories. They're on cheesy Christian bookstore t-shirts. They are on napkins for Christmas dinner time. It's, they're everywhere if you have eyes to look and you see these terms from Isaiah 9. And hear me out, please. I am not necessarily complaining about the news of Isaiah 9 getting out there in art and in domestic life. Like, it is news that ought to be shared. But I am saying that there's a danger in turning the powerful, life-changing news into sound bites and inspiration for kitschy napkins. Because when we domesticate the wild and mysterious and powerful gospel of God, we turn it into something we think we can control and to meet out and to deal with on our own terms in certain times of year and certain settings. Many of us, myself included, find ourselves falling into the trap that this announcement of a wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace is just a list of nice sayings about a nice God who wants to do nice things for you. How nice. So how do we avoid this trap? Because that felt gross, didn't it? Like, that's got to be more than that. How do we avoid that trap? Well, what I want to do is revisit this passage with some fresh perspective by just starting by going back to its original setting. And to start with, this prophecy given by God to the prophet Isaiah uh, came hundreds of years before Jesus was born, hundreds of years before there was a church. And here's the setting. Israel, the people that God had chosen to reveal his love 
and character to the entire world, well, they found themselves under threat from foreign invaders. In fact, we learn in Isaiah 7 and part of 2 Kings and Chronicles that, that they were outmatched by their, by their rivals in this situation. They were militarily, there was no hope for them. Uh, but in Isaiah 7, we learn that God directly goes to Ahaz, that's the king of Israel, through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, if you will lead the people to trust in me, I will deliver you. I'll deliver you just like I delivered Moses and the Israelites from Egypt. I'll deliver you just like Gideon in the Midian uh, against the Midianites. I will deliver you just like I've delivered you over and over again. But instead, Ahaz does not trust Yahweh. Who does he make a pact with? He makes a pact with Egypt. I mean, you just sense the irony. Yahweh had rescued Israel from Egypt centuries earlier, and now the king of Israel is going to put his trust in the king of Egypt instead of Yahweh, their God. And as a result of placing their trust in Egypt rather than Yahweh, in 733 BC, Assyria came, and it's in poetic language, it talks like, um, like, a, like a, a river overflowing its, its banks and flooding onto Israel. That's a little too poignant for what's going on in our actual community right now. So you can imagine just this, the power of water when it overflows its banks and just does whatever it wants to do. And that's exactly how the scriptures describe Assyria coming upon Israel. And the northern tribes of Israel were crushed and humiliated and dragged off as slaves to the Assyrian Empire. And what was left was just shambles. The Assyrians destroyed crops, they left families fatherless, they dragged off able-bodied men and women and girls and boys. It was utterly catastrophic. And it was the result of humans placing their faith in empire and economy, power and political intrigue rather than in God. Now if this were a Greek tragedy or a Roman myth, or a Sumerian poem, it would have been a lesson that you don't deny the gods. It would have been a morality tale against Israel. It would have been an I told you so story. But this is not that type of story. And in his graciousness and mercy, Yahweh reaches out to his, peop his people, and uh, this people that he desperately loves, and he mentions Zebulun and Naphtali in Isaiah chapter 9. Those are the two tribes that were hit hardest by Assyria. And they, were, they represent this people of Israel sitting in darkness that's without hope and without favor. This group of people were groping in the dark, seeking after false gods, and seeking advice from uh, spiritualists and evil spirits and the dead and fortune tellers. And to this group who were currently walking in darkness, God declared that they would see a great light. Light is the symbol, universal symbol for knowledge and wisdom and life. But if you're an Israelite, above all of those things, light is a symbol for God's presence being with you and dwelling among you. 
Now, written largely in poetry, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, speaks of a new kingdom breaking into the world in which God would liberate and dwell with his people. And, and he would defend them and rescue them from oppression. And in this strange twist, we learn that the one he is sending is going to be a child. This child, a son, is then described with these extravagant promises, attributes, and titles. Things like the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And before we dig into kind of the, the, the meaning of those names and titles, I just want to ask the question, like, what did the original Israelite hearers think of when Isaiah, when God tells them that this is who he's sending? A person like this, a child that's going to be known by all of these names. On the surface, it sounds like a lot of hype. Who on earth could possibly live up to these kinds of names? You and I, we live in a world of hype. We're bombarded with ads that hype up products that are supposed to change our lives for the better, but almost always let us down. Our athletes and our entertainment actually have hype guys that like put their stuff out on Twitter to make their brands, you know, their no national and global brand look good. They're, people are always looking good the more famous you are, right? Unless you get caught with the truth. Our politicians constantly spew hype about what they're going to do for us if they're elected. Hype is the sort of thing that someone announces before they have the right to be heard. Hype is self-promotion without evidence. I don't normally believe hype. I've become pretty skeptical of hype. In fact, the more something is hyped up, the more skeptical and withdrawn I typically become. Put it on banners and t-shirts and lunchboxes, and I'm more likely to think of it as Disney fluff than the promises of God. And you know what? The Israelites knew a lot about hype as well. In the ancient world, when a king took the throne, they had lists of ascension names. So uh, Queen Jennifer, the fourth of her name, uh, mighty goddess, everlasting queen, uh, warrior above all warriors, wise in all of her ways. It would just be this long list, and you'd just be like yawning with, okay, another one is going to rule over us, and they're not going to be good, and it's all the same kind of hype. And these heralds would read these names out loud to the public whenever the king took the throne or entered the room. Tiglath Pileser III, that's already, that's just the guy's name, that's not even his ascension <laughs> names. He was the, the head of Assyria who conquered Israel in this setting in 733, and he's got lists of names, ascension names, that are a lot like the names in Isaiah 9. Not exactly the same, but a lot like those. It was all talk. I mean, clearly, the king of Assyria, the king of Egypt, or the king of wherever, clearly they were not actually gods. And wonderful counselors, well, not if you disagreed with them, they weren't wonderful. And everlasting father, maybe an abusive father, and thank God they weren't everlasting, because these were horrible people. These ascension names, 
that Israelites would have been familiar with, all hype. All there to impress and to give false honor and to offer very little substance. We're skeptical of hype today, and the people in the ancient world were too. So who is this child? But we don't really know historically what Isaiah was talking about. You know, kings came and kings went. Children were born and they grew up and they died. Every once in a while, someone, an heir to the throne would be a pretty good person and all of the, the expectations would be placed on them and then eh, they're not so great and they die. And no one ever lived up to these names. Israel wrestled for centuries about the meaning of these texts and these promises. Didn't know who it was going to be. And after a while, it probably just seemed like a bunch of hype and a bunch of words to make us feel good or to have hope, wishful thinking. But then something changed. And in the first century A.D., a child was born to a virgin in Bethlehem named Mary. And an angel told her that her child would be known as Christ the Lord. That means Messiah, Yahweh. He would be the Prince of Peace. And this child would be born right under the nose of Caesar, the Roman emperor, who claimed to be Lord and God and the Prince of Peace. Did you know that? That's what he said about himself. Now, one of these two, Caesar and Jesus, one of these two was full of hype. No one worships Caesar today. We're literally gathered to worship Jesus. And what I find fascinating is that no one was thinking at the time, save maybe Mary and Anna and Simeon and a handful of other people, no one was looking at this baby born in a manger and thinking to themselves, this has got to be the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. This looks like the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. No, Jesus was born in a mangy manger and and he's just a kid. No one was thinking that way when he was born. But what happened is people began to watch his life and they observed not just that he lived, but they observed the way he lived. And they observed not only what he taught, but the way he taught. And they witnessed him healing and prophesying and doing mighty deeds. Deeds with the sort of power that only God can perform. And it was shortly after his death and his resurrection that the people began to put together, you know what? I think this was, this was that, that child that was promised to us Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in Matthew chapter 4, where Matthew's wrestling with uh, who, how do I present who this Jesus is to these people I want to share him with, he, he's got that the light coming to Zebulun and Naphtali, quoting from Isaiah 9, and he's saying it about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled these things in his person. Hype is the noise that people make without evidence. Don't believe the hype. But when someone does something worthy of worship, when someone lives out and exceeds the expectations, when Jesus embodied these sayings in Isaiah 9, it ceases to be about hype and becomes the real deal, right? 
In a world which so many of our leaders abuse their power and disappoint and seem to be all talk with no real power to get things done, how wonderful it is to think that the government will rest on the shoulders of Jesus one day. Unlike the leaders of the world who leverage their power for their own glory, Jesus washes the feet of his followers and pours out his life to rescue us. I don't always believe the hype, but Jesus lived it out. That's someone I can trust. You know, in a world where advisors and leaders offer us short-sighted solutions that might prop up the economy at the expense of future generations, isn't it a relief to know that Jesus is the wonderful counselor? That Jesus gives wisdom and guidance, truth and grace? Jesus gives counsel without strings attached or hidden agendas of re-election or self-preservation. I don't always believe the hype, but Jesus lived it out. He's trustworthy. It's rare to find someone looking out for us who is both strong and gentle. You know, our world tends to give us extremes, harsh, Strength on the one hand or impotent, empty, niceness on the other. Some people think the answer to happiness or to to success is to be stronger and aggressive and in front of the pack. Whether as a nation or as a business or as individuals, that's the way they go about it. Others see the path as being passive and politically correct and ready to cancel at any sign of disagreement. But in Jesus, we see both mighty God who casts out demons and fights injustice and defeats death, and we see the everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, who is the Good Shepherd, laying his life down for us. How does he mix those two together? I don't always believe the hype, but Jesus embodied it, lived it out. I think he's trustworthy. I hope this short journey behind the scenes has helped to give a fresh perspective on a passage that's familiar to many of you. But I want to close with just two more pieces of perspective, just to make sure that we don't sentimentalize this amazing piece of scripture. First, I want to emphasize the inevitability of this promise, the inevitability of this promise. God has declared it long ago, Jesus was born in the first century AD and began the process of bringing a new kingdom, the the kingdom described in Isaiah 9. And whether or not we're ready, whether or not we even believe what Isaiah has to say, Jesus is coming to bring the kingdom in fullness one day. Hear the good news. The promises on Isaiah 9 are unstoppable. Your lack of faith in this moment doesn't throw God off course, okay? Don't put faith in your faith, as Dale Bruner says, and I often repeat. Put your faith in Jesus. The second thing I want to emphasize is that Isaiah 9 is just as much a warning as it is a promise of good news. It's just as much a warning as it is a promise of good news. You see, I've been setting up this sermon as though we needed to be convinced 
that Jesus is not all hype. And I know for some of us, we need to be reminded of that. That's okay. We need to be reminded that Jesus is the real deal. And that's the emphasis of my sermon has been to show Jesus embodying these promises. But Advent and Christmas, they're not really about that. Advent and Christmas are really about God not believing our hype. Christmas is about God not believing the hype that we've got this. The hype that we're almost there. The hype that we're just one good idea away from saving ourselves. Just one climate conference away. Just one peace treaty away. Just one technological advancement away. Just one cure away. Just one social movement away. We're almost there. We don't need you, God. Christmas is about God not believing our hype. And the good news of Jesus coming is only good news if we respond to him with repentance and faith. And those are sort of religious terms, so let me rephrase that. The good news of Jesus is only good news if we turn from trying to live as though we were in control, starting to put our trust in Jesus. For those who continue to seek their own way, for those who refuse to allow Jesus to forgive them and to heal them and restore them, there's like no other forgiveness. We either find our justice in Jesus or Jesus brings justice to all who've contributed to the mess that we're in, and that includes me. And that includes everyone. So don't believe the hype. Look and see whether or not Jesus is someone you can trust. And I would leave you with the the phrase from Peter, if not Jesus, to whom else? To whom else will you turn? To whom else will you put your faith?